Hello, today we are speaking with Lini um, about uh, her arrests, about her sentencing coming up, and about the conditions in the Vancouver Cordova Street Jail. So, hi Lini. Hello. How are you? I'm good, good, what? yeah. How about yourself? I'm fine, yeah. Um, so, how I like to start these off is by talking about um, what your life was before you had an awakening that you had to dedicate a substantial, if not a substantial part, if not all of it, to um, awaking the, the consciousness of the general public to the, to the climate emergency that's unfolding in front of us. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing um, before you started getting arrested. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so before all of this, I, um, I guess I can just start off by saying like I was a huge animal lo lover, like my whole life. Um, and that's always been a very clear calling to me. That's the only thing I've ever wanted to do with my life is, is work for preventing the suffering of, of non-human animals. I mean, humans too, obviously, but that is what really calls to me. And so, um, luckily I had the opportunity to go to school and I, I went and I studied biology, um, to pursue my interests in animals, cute dog. And then I got my undergraduate there. I became involved in research, um, of, uh, insects, aquatic in, insects in freshwater ecosystems. And I was very, very lucky to have the opportunity to go and, and do some field work down in Costa Rica. And then I went to graduate school and I did a master's degree specializing in the conservation of, um, of amphibians. And so I had the opportunity to work in Panama um, doing my master's thesis with the Smithsonian down there. And a little bit about that. You're, you're, I, I, I was talking to your sister one day and she, she told me about the, your time down there and the, the disease you were looking into. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so but I guess long story short, like where I ended up finding myself for a while was in this world of conservation biology. So right. basically the idea is you, you use science to save species from extinction <laughs> and uh, uh, so frogs are actually, they're going, um, amphibians overall are going extinct worldwide. It's a phenomena called the global amphibian decline. And it's pretty messed up because it's not like, oh, the yellow bellied blah, blah, blah is going. It's like, no, frogs are going extinct as a whole. Um, and it's, you know, very much a bellwether for what's going on with the world right now. Um, but basically down in South Central America, and in Australia and many other parts of the world, there's a disease um, called chytrid disease that is wiping out amphibians in the wild. Um, and biologists believe that it was a pathogen that was introduced into the wild um, in the 80s and the effects of climate change Arguably, this is something that they argue about because it's very hard to control for all the other factors and say conclusively, but it does look like climate change has created conditions that allow that disease to thrive in the wild more than it did before, or at least weaken the frog's immune systems so that they can't handle it like they could before because of all this stress. 
So long story short, in huge areas of the world, frogs are just getting a fungal disease that kills them. And now there's many, many, many species of frogs that due to the chytrid disease and due to habitat loss um, together are extinct in the wild completely. And so they only exist in breeding tanks run by different amphibian arc projects. Um, and Panama has one such project. So they have a whole bunch of species that are extinct in the wild, were nearly extinct in the wild, and they're breeding them in captivity just on life support to keep them around. Um, whether or not they can be released ever, that's another question. They just kind of stuck a pin in it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to ramble you. No, no, that's, I, I think that's, it's super, super, super interesting. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you uh, you were trying to save the frog. You <laughs> weren't able to save the frog because I'm 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 sure because you know we haven't tackled the the core issue, which is our our our, our addiction to fossil fuels, which is causing runaway climate change. So a yeah. lot of things are going to go extinct. So I I, I mean I I safeguarded a frog in captivity, <laughs> but yeah. I didn't feel like I safeguarded it from anything yeah. else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, mine, it was, I was trying to figure out why they all had this disease um, in captivity that was causing their legs to be deformed. And I did get to the bottom of that so that the breeding population was okay. But it yeah. was interesting because, like, I felt like it's like you get all this uh, academic clout, like, ooh, Smithsonian and this and that, and yeah. oh, you're academic and ooh, uh, high degrees and all that. But, like, it, people were regarding me as if I was doing something, but I knew deep down I was doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, my project was largely subsidized by the mining company responsible for that frog's habitat being gone. It yeah. was really disenchanting. And yeah. once I finished that master's degree and I, I worked for them for a few more months and I came home um, for mental health reasons, I just kind of drifted around and I was like really... Um, confused about this because I had been told that you know I could use these skills in science to make the world a better place but yeah. what I was learning was that like there's there's biologists just overflowing that are studying species extinctions and what needs to be done we don't need more people studying how the world is dying yeah. um, and it feels really unethical and wrong to study how the world is dying and just take notes on it instead of actually doing something. So, but, and, and I didn't have any education on civil disobedience or how to um, force legislative change or how to create incentive. I never even took a political science course. So I felt like I had been lied to largely about what that education would allow me to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So then you um, you got involved with Extinction Rebellion, and tell us about the first time you risked arrest. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, the first time I risked arrest was with the October Rebellion mm -hmm. with Extinction Rebellion. Um, it was the first day of it, and we were going to do fourteen days of roadblocks in a row. Um, and um, this was back when the police uh, and Extinction Rebellion um, had a very different relationship. Yeah. And I would say that the entire process was uh, extremely cushy and privileged. Um, I just sat down on the road and they very politely asked me if I could move. And I said, I wouldn't move. Um, and then they said, okay, you will be arrested. 
And then they picked me up and they put handcuffs on me, put me in the little paddy wagon. I wasn't even held. Um, they just wrote me some conditions on the bench at the police station and then released me immediately after yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And then things started to get more, more intense. Um, yeah. So then most recently you had a pretty traumatic experience. And this is one thing I'd, I'd really like people to hear about are um, the conditions in the Cordova street jail, because you were arrested in a stable growth action and taken to the Cordova, uh, the Cordova street jail. And it was quite traumatic in there, right? Cause you were kept for a fair amount of time. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, it was definitely, um, like probably the most traumatic experience of my life. Um, and um, I guess I could just say to start that like, I almost feel like a part of me is like, feels like at least it was justice that that happened to me because before that, I, I, <laughs> I felt like the special treatment that they were giving us was very unfair. And like, it's always on my mind that like, people of color or vulnerable people are just thrown in there for literally nothing on a regular basis and yeah. how longer than I was held. And in a way I'm now that I can look back on it and I've recovered, I'm actually really grateful for the experience because I can understand. It's one thing to understand in theory, but it's another thing to actually understand just how horrific. Yeah. Um, you were held for 36 hours and yeah. tell us about what was going on inside. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, it's just really, 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 you know, I don't know, maybe like a, I don't know the dimensions of a room. I'm not great with dimensions, but it's a very small room. Um, maybe eight feet by six feet or something like that. Um, there's a cot, um, and it's not cleaned at all. Like there is literally just like urine, yellow, like crystallized cakes, urine all around. Um, the toilet um, and as well, like on the bed, there's like sticky substances um, on this cot mattress. Um, everything stinks of urine. The the toilet that's there, um, you know, typical toilet seat without the uh, without the toilet seat or anything like that. But it's um, the one that I had. It kept flooding. So anytime anyone else in any of the cells took a dump, it would come up in my toilet and like threaten to over bubble you know like when the toilet's flooding and it's right at the very yeah. very very top and you're like it's gonna go it would reach that every time anyone else took a shit and it would appear in my toilet um i've always had a history of, of panic attacks like right um so i think i i underestimated <laughs> just how poorly that situation would work out for me in terms of my own mental health because it just um it triggered like a positive feedback loop of, of panic attacks so I was in and out of consciousness like hyperventilating and passing out um did anyone check on you uh they did make me go see a nurse at one point and um I was able to get some gravel which helped put me to sleep and I just kept asking for gravel every time a guard walked by back to the same cell with the overflowing toilet? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, I couldn't figure out how to get the button to work to get water. Um, because like you have to push it, but it's, you have to push it a little bit harder than, than you would think it was. And so I, I, you know, given the toilet and the way everything else was, I assumed that the water wasn't working. 
And I kept telling them the water isn't working and they just roll their eyes at me. And so I went for the first like, um, like I think like 12 hours without being able to have water. Um, and, and incidentally, you just have to push the button harder, but it took that long for a guard to actually come in and test it for me and show right. me. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, hearing the people around you, it's really terrifying because pretty much everyone in there, it's very, very clear is, is someone that needs help of some kind. Um, like they're experiencing psychosis or some sort of mental breakdown. And so there's just screaming and rattling all around you from the different cells. Um, a lot of pain that you can just pick up on from being there um, the entire night, screaming, coming from around you. Um, and just a feeling of not being safe at all. Like, yeah, yeah. it so doesn't matter what you say, you're just going to be ignored. <laughs> Yeah, so I can imagine what it's like for yeah for people who don't have any sort of support system are not going to have someone waiting for them when they come out. Because I remember I was yeah. I was waiting for you outside and I was seeing person after person. And we couldn't get we can't get you can't get any information about anybody that's in the jail. So somebody who's in that Cordova Street jail, you can ask and ask and ask and ask. They won't tell you that if they're yeah. in there, they won't, if it's safe, you know, even your partner couldn't get information because we went and asked and they're like, I'm not allowed to give you for their privacy or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting because somebody released my name to the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, when I hear for your, pri for your, for your privacy or for their privacy, um, I'm always very, very suspicious now yeah. for that so many times. Um, and so we couldn't, you know, we had somebody there the whole, you know, the whole 36 hours waiting. And I saw person after person after person coming out of the door with a little bag of stuff. And, it, you know, it, it brought me to tears a couple of times and just kind of looking around and obviously having no idea where to go. Yeah. Be there. And it's just this door opens and off they got tossed after how many hours in a place with a, a toilet flooding from shit or no toilet at all. Um, no food, the cliff bar that they give you every several hours. And I, on the interview with Bill, he said they even would open the door and kick his cliff bar in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, they were awful about the food, actually. I couldn't eat a bite the entire time I was in there. And they would make a point of telling me, oh, you care about the environment. Well, this is food waste. And then they kick their food at you. Like they antagonize you and they go out of their way to, you know. Bizarre. Make you feel like shit. Um, it's not nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, now that, you know, this is now we have, you know, people of great privilege who are now spending time in that, um, that jail for civil disobedience. It's, it's becoming, you know, so clear that our system is incredibly broken and a lot of what's going on in Vancouver, um, so-called Vancouver on the, on the streets is, there's no intention of the in, in the politicians of actually addressing all of the issues that are going on if they're allowing that to happen in the jail where mentally ill people are being taken, not people who are committing. <laughs> One thing I kept thinking about too is, I mean, with the opioid crisis, the fact that people are being held for 48 hours or sometimes longer and then released with absolutely no resources, that puts them at such a high risk of, of overdose death. 
because yeah. you go into the your tolerance goes down right and then you go out and then you use and yeah and he knows what kind of what it feels like to be in a situation where you're incredibly addicted to a, a pain relieving medication and then you don't have it for two days. Yeah. They could die of overdose. Um, okay. Uh, let's uh, talk about you um, are going to be appearing soon and we'll talk to you after that appearance and you're pleading um, guilty to mischief, several counts. And uh, what is your sentencing look looking like? Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, I the Crown is not asking for uh, jail time, prison time. Uh, they asked, well, they asked for, I think, maybe two days, which they asked for on purpose because I already served two days in holding. Right. Um, and I'm going to plead guilty um, just because I am recognizing basically that, like, uh, I can't withstand those conditions yet without going into complete panic spirals. Yeah. And my sister very gently pointed out when she picked me up, she was like, you used to have panic attacks when you got dropped off at pottery school. <laughs> like maybe you should think carefully about like yeah. what you're doing. Um, but the way I see it, everything I'm doing is, is very strategic and very calculated and I don't regret yeah. any of it. So what would happen if you didn't plead guilty? Does Because so they give you a sentence. Is that a sentence if you plead guilty? If you don't plead guilty, then they're going to ask for jail? Is that what happens? Yeah. So if you don't plead guilty, basically you take it to trial. And um, oftentimes the um, prosecution will say things like, okay, well, I see you're taking this to trial. Um, and a judge will come forward and say, if you plead guilty, you'll be with me and I'm very nice. If you don't plead guilty, you'll be with this judge and they have a history of putting people in jail for these types of things. Uh, then, you know, there's just, if, if you take it to trial and you, you are found to be guilty, you are oftentimes looking at a more severe consequence than what the Crown is offering initially. It seems wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of things seem wrong. I mean, it's also fascinating to me that they can use basically kidnapping a person and torturing them and holding for two days as a punishment, which is very clearly what happened to me. That was punitive and that was designed to um, defer me from doing this again. But right. they did it before I went to trial. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I was sitting in there, I was like, hey, aren't, aren't I supposed to be innocent right now? Yeah. Proven guilty? Like, what? This feels like a punishment. Yeah. Um, I'm no law major, but I'm pretty sure that's not how, how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't making my decision to plead guilty um, because I'm afraid of what would happen if I tried to take it to trial um, in yeah. terms of the outcome. Absolutely. And this is what the prosecution is going for and is, is um, citing deterrence and increasing her, uh, her, her sentencing proposals. Is it proposal ISP? Is that initial sentencing? Uh, position. Position. Her sentencing yeah. position. She is basing that on um, her concept of uh, both personal 
and public deter general deterrence. And so um, she is asking for increasing sentence and she is citing general deterrence. And in my mind, and this has been argued throughout the world uh, with people who are committing civil disobedience, is that this makes the courts, the whole court system complicit in, uh, in the climate emergency, right? Um, because I understand that the courts are there to prevent chaos, but that's essentially what we're doing. <laughs> we're yeah. trying to prevent uh, chaos, like real chaos, like social collapse chaos, where there's violence in the streets because we don't have enough resources and we don't have enough food and we don't have clean water. And that is happening in places in the world already. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, um, I don't think anybody wants to be sitting on the road in front of cars and being arrested and put in jail and uh, just for, you know, shits and giggles. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. You know, we have you know, Tim Picaro who was in jail for, he was sentenced to 21 days for, and he is a, 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 a physician and an, a, a professor and an expert in health consequence, like climate related uh, health problems, like health, the health consequences of a collapsing climate. And I, it boggles my mind that we're putting, you know, scientists in jail. Yeah. It's um, not surprising. It's the way history's always been. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think that it's going to backfire on them because this this idea of general deference and increasing penalties, increasing penalties, increasing penalties, it generally backfires when yeah. you have people that are fighting for something that is objectively truth and right. right. Yeah. And so I think they're just going to end up with hundreds of people in prison. So yeah. when I was already at the bail hearing and was genuinely had just decided that like, well, it's been seven hours since my bail hearing. There's no way like, that's it. They've decided they're keeping me. I don't know what's happening, but they're keeping me. Like I was done at that point mentally. And then this alarm starts going off and I'm in the basement and it sounds like a fire alarm. It's absolutely deafening. Um, and there's like different stages to it. So there's the one that's like me, me, me. And then there's the more intense one. And then there's a more intense one. <laughs> and it went through all three of these. And, you know, a guard walked by maybe one time with his hands over his ears and just completely ignored me when I was like screaming to know what was going on. Um, and like, my anxiety levels were just so high. Like I said, I had been in and out of consciousness, panic attacks and all that for 36 hours. So, I mean, at that point, like I would literally just like, I, I wholeheartedly thought I was gonna die. Yeah. I thought that it, the building had caught fire and that they had just left me there to die. Um, or that I, I was going to get flooded or I don't know what, but they were going to leave me there to die. Um, and it was, I don't know how long that went on for. It felt like hours. It could have been a long time because we were listening to it outside. Yeah. And you had been released and your bail had been paid at this time uh -huh. for hours. And we were, you know, cause we left the courtroom. We knew you were getting out. We went outside and still sat there, sat there for hours. Uh, so, I mean, it was, it was punitive. I was being held there uh, for punitive reasons. And that's why they, they kept me that long. The fire alarm though, that was just like, that was, 
But of all of the things that happened in there that scared me, um, that was the worst. That and not having like, I mean, being in solitary, not having a window, not having a clock. They don't turn the lights off at night. So you literally after like, I mean, it's like sensory deprivation, right? So you can't see how you're oriented or where you are. You can't see what time of day it is. You don't know what time it is. The only way you can tell is if you are lucky enough to get a guard, maybe one in 100 that will tell you what time it is instead of just rolling their eyes or walking past you and you ask. Um, and so like, it was completely disorienting. When I got out and I realized that like two days had gone by, like it fascinating, but like really, really, really messed up. And yeah, it made me think about how people like, um, who have like been prisoners of war and stuff like that, that like that's what they- It is torture. Yeah, no, I've looked up what <laughs> torture is and everything that you're saying um, is torture. Like being, being left for, uh, you know, 36 to 48 hours in a brightly lit room. Yeah, and at nighttime, right? Like you, first of all, you, you don't know it's night. Yeah. <laughs> but you're just- it's so disoriented. I can't even tell you how disorienting it is. I did my best to keep track of time for like the first 24 hours. But after that, it was just, I didn't know. Was it day? Was it night? Where like a long nothing. There. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And like the, the, it is so freaky to have constant bright light like that for, for, for two days. It's, yeah. Yeah. And to not really be able to lie down because you're going to be lying in filth. I can't, yeah. it boggles my mind that they don't have to clean the cells. I mean, they say they do. I don't know what, what, like, <laughs> spit shine. Um, yeah, no, it, it's just completely panic inducing, like completely and utterly panic inducing. It's a, it, it's an environment designed to make you feel like they don't care if you live or you die and that you might just die. And when that fire alarm started going, then I was, I was sure of it. Like everything in my body was telling me I was going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And life is just going on like normal outside. So weird. Yeah. Right there. Like, you get out and it's just so dystopian. Like. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's opened my eyes so much to just what these vulnerable people who aren't choosing to put themselves in positions like I am, like what their reality is. And it's just sickening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you have your sentencing coming up um, in early September. Uh, and I guess what we'll do is we'll check in after that and see what happened. You can explain to us what went on in the court. Honestly, like, I mean, I don't know if all this stuff that I'm doing is, is going to help, but it can't hurt because people have to know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> and I had no idea, like... Until all this is happening, I had no idea that it was like in that in that place where all our highly paid lawyers work. Yeah. Just in there, they're fucking torturing people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And those judges like walking in and out in there with their three hundred thousand dollar salaries, and all the lawyers with their hundred and fifty thousand dollar year salaries are like they don't, I bet they don't even fucking know. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. And I just, I hope that this podcast helps people realize that like, yeah, we're not, we're not just doing this for fun. <laughs> um, 
first of all, why would anyone think that's fun? Um, yeah. And we're not doing it because we're misinformed. It's the opposite. Yeah. So, um, pretty much all of us are evidence-based science people. And we're doing this because according to the evidence and the information we currently have at hand, this is the only shot we have. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to end it with that. That's an amazing statement. <laughs> you never know that you're living in a free state till it's too late.